If you would, please open in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And if you stand, uh, I'll be reading verses 23 through 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 through 31. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake, I do not mean your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another man's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Please be seated. How many of you know that one of my favorite um, people in history, one of my favorite sports figures is Eric Little, uh, the British Olympian and missionary to China. He's a hero of mine for a lot of different reasons. And if you uh, are old enough to remember the movie Chariots of Fire, uh, it highlighted him as a man of conviction who would not run on Sunday, and so he gave up the chance to win the signature race of the 1924 Olympics, which was the 100-meter dash. Instead, once he found out the schedule for the Olympics, several months before, he began training for the 400-meter distance, a distance that he had very little previous experience in. Now, to the amazement of the world and to the glory of God, he won the gold medal, even setting a new world record in the process. However, another amazing thing about Eric Little was that although he was a man of conscience, he was also a man of freedom. He found great joy in sports. Few people know that he was one of Scotland's highest profile rugby players, yet he never allowed his joy in freedom in running or in playing rugby to overcome his responsibility to minister to others and to share the gospel. All during his college years, he gave evangelistic talks to large crowds of adoring fans, and when his Olympic tour was finished, he set out for missions work in China. He resolutely set his face to put aside his fame and to walk into the work for him in China, from which he never returned. Two furloughs, but then he ultimately died in a Japanese concentration camp in China. He was a man of character, who did not allow the world to become his idol, but instead brought Christ to the world. Now, Christians are to take great care that they do not engage in the idolatry of the world, lest they commune with and condone the demonic spirit of our age. However, Christians are also free to enjoy with a clear conscience the good things of this world that God has created. The overarching principle of all of our interactions, whether with the world or with other believers, is that we are to do that which is pleasing to God and good to others while never seeking to live for ourselves. In other words, we are to love God and love others as the highest priority of our lives. So what we'll see this morning is that God has graciously given believers the freedom to act according to their conscience in all areas that he has not forbidden. Yet this freedom is only to be exercised for the good of others and for the edification of the church. God has graciously given believers the freedom to act according to their conscience in all areas that he has not forbidden. Yet this freedom is only to be exercised for the good of others and for the edification of the church. Christian freedom is the freedom to give up my rights for the edification of God's people. Now, in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, we have seen really the, the end of Paul's argument against 
uh, idolatry. So in chapter, verse 14 of chapter 10, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry, which has been our theme essentially from chapter 8, verse 1, all the way through verse 22, that we end, where we ended last week. And in chapter 10, Paul really gave the example, he was kind of building to this idea that God will bring his discipline on those who pursue idolatry, and most specifically in the church. Being in the church does not deliver us from God's disciplining hand if we try to combine the worship of another God, or really, as, as we saw last week, demonic worship with the worship of our Savior. This should never be the case. And the Corinthians were taking this for granted by going back into the temples to partake of the meat sacrificed to idols at the very sacrifices where a deity was being honored. And Paul says, look, it's not a deity there, but you are communing with demons. And and he, he says in the beginning of verse 10, remember Israel tried disobedience. As God's chosen people, they didn't obey. God brought his discipline on them. Why, wouldn't, why would you think he wouldn't bring it on you? As though the things in the Old Testament didn't matter to the new. That's a different dispensation. That, those things won't happen to us. Well, they were dead wrong, literally. He says, look, you need to, you need to wake up. Why? Because when you commit idolatry, you are provoking the Lord to jealousy. You are his children. You are his bride and you cannot then commit spiritual adultery, which is what idolatry is, and expect that your bridegroom will not care, as though a husband would not care if his wife was sleeping with someone else. He would care. God cares. And so we saw last week that wise men flee idolatry. Why? Because idolatry brings the jealousy of the Lord Jesus, and we are not stronger than he. To provoke the Lord Jesus to jealousy, we saw in verse 22, is insane. Why would you do that? How could you think that that would go well for you? And it was not going well for the church in Corinth. We ended with the ominous words, or do you provoke the Lord to jealousy in verse 22? We are not stronger than he, are we? You're not going to overcome the jealousy of the bridegroom for the bride. He will come and bring his discipline to draw you back to himself. And that was already happening in Corinth. We're working our way towards it, but in chapter 11, we will see that there are some who are sick, some who are actually going unto death as a result of their improper partaking of the Lord's Supper, involving themselves in things that were idolatrous, involving themselves in things which harmed Christ's bride. And Christ takes that very seriously. But as Paul finishes up with a seriousness, and really, I, I believe starting in chapter 8, verse 1, he's been driving in the direction of where we finished last week. You may not go back into the temples. You are exercising. You claim to be exercising a freedom that you don't have. But now, he's going to, he's going to pivot and say, but there are areas of freedom that you do have. And you are to feel free to exercise those areas of freedom. This is the beauty of the Christian life. It is beautifully balanced. The danger and, and, and sharp warning of those who would commit idolatry, who would think that their freedom could lead them to adulterate their spirituality. But there, there are those of us who then, in, for fear of perhaps doing something like that, we would then back off of things or even call others to move away from things in which we have perfect freedom so we live biblically. We live in a balanced manner according to the principles of Scripture, not our own opinions. And that's why it is so important to look carefully at Scripture. So now Paul will pivot, and he will move towards those things which are not forbidden, and he will tell them, he will show them, look, there are places where you can eat meat sacrificed to idols. You have freedom to do that in two spots. But before he does that, he's going to review for them the nature of their Christian freedom so that they don't misunderstand what he's saying. Say, well, you have your freedom. And in fact, it's really strong in verse 30. He says, look, no one ought to judge your freedom. 
but you ought to judge your freedom. You are only to use your freedom in such a way that it will be a benefit to others. So perfectly balanced, as always. Right? The exercise of Christian freedom with the understanding of others' consciences and delighting in the good things that God has given while running far away from anything which would displease him. So let's begin by looking, Paul reviews the general principles of Christian freedom. And again, in this chapter, it's like he starts and stops and yet he's, he's working his way. So it's all still one argument that he's making. Now the kind of really the final part of the freedom from idolatry that they can exercise. So in verse 23, he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. I mean, this right after, don't provoke the Lord to jealousy. Like, Paul, where are you going? Again, he pivots from, from the sharpness of that warning, again, to the expression of our freedom, but he wants to remind them that our freedom is bounded by our love for others. Our freedom is bounded by our own desire, willingness to be slaves of all men, which he's already talked about in chapter 9, and which he'll finish out talking about at the end of this chapter. So the general principles of Christian freedom are this. Christian freedom may only be exercised for what is profitable and edifying. And so in our text, he says, all things are lawful, not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Now, if you remember, it was many months ago, but Paul has already brought up this argument. He's reviewing. When they were talking about immorality, Paul again in chapter 6, he said, look, all things are lawful. There are certain things that you do have freedom to do, but you don't have freedom in this area of your sexual immorality, and you need to understand that even where things are permitted, you are still bound by this law of love that you must only do the things that are, first word he uses here, are profitable, that is, which are of a benefit to others. Your life is to be lived to benefit everyone else, not you. See, our world has it exactly flipped. Your life is to benefit you, follow your dreams, follow your heart, accomplish your work, have your me time. Yeah, you can benefit others if that, if that is an overflow of what you want to do, but in fact, the world would tell you that you can't actually even be a benefit to others unless you are achieving your own dreams. That is not Christianity. That, that, is, that is demonic worship 101. Biblical worship 101 is your freedom is to, be a prof, is to be profitable. Your life gets to be profitable of actual true benefit, spiritual benefit to everyone else. This is your blessing. Even something that is lawful may not be good to pursue because it is not helpful for someone else's walk with Christ or for the purpose of bringing glory to God. So you always are thinking about everything in that way. Again, he says, not all things are lawful. He repeats it. All things are lawful. That is, again, anything that God doesn't directly prohibit, you have the freedom to pursue. Guys, that's a lot of freedom. Now, there are lots of commands in here, but there are a lot of things that those commands do not cover. You have lots of freedom. That's a delight. But we have to use it so very carefully so that we might be able to truly edify others. So if we could think of maybe profitable as maybe, and I don't want to pause this directly in mind, but if we might think of profitable, I want to benefit you individually or directly. But when he uses this word edify, it immediately moves it towards a corporate context because to edify is to build up. And he will use this word over and over in chapter 12, chapters 13 and 14 to say, this is what, Every aspect of who we are is to do for the body of Christ. All of our giftedness, all of the things we are given, it's not only individually, it's not only even directly one-on-one, -on -one. this is done to build up the body of Christ. 
So your freedom is not only to be used to be a benefit to other people individually, it is also to be used to build up the entire body of Christ. And that, of course, begins with the local body of which you are a part. You're not a part of everybody else's church. You're a part of this one. And so your primary goal in life is to do everything you do so that the body of Christ might be built up. People might be profited, true benefit done to them by your actions, and true building up, true edification where they are strengthened and where the church is made whole and strong because of your work. These things are to be always in your mind. And this is difficult for us because we spend most of our time thinking about ourselves. And so we need to be reminded that our true satisfaction is not to be found in pursuing our own dreams, but in the pursuit of the body of Christ being built up. Now, I know and we know that as we draw close to Christ, our true satisfaction does come from loving others. When our satisfaction is found in God, we are most satisfied. But I think what we are reminded, I'm convinced, that constantly what the Scriptures remind us of is that we remain sinful people. And at our best, we always have to deny our sinful tendencies. There was never one day ever where you woke up and said, hey, I've been serving God pretty strongly. Most of what I've been doing has been benefiting others. So today I'll just put it on cruise control and I'm sure that my life will just be a benefit to others. It won't. You will default to your sinful desires every single time. You are a sinner still. Now again, for believers, they can actually do this. You grow in your delight of serving others. But as I said, there is never a time when you don't have to deny yourself. When you don't have to say, I'm not simply going to pursue what I want to do and even call it benefiting to others when I know it isn't. So in order to exercise our freedom properly, we must be sure that we bear the weaknesses of others, that we give to others the best of our strength and the best of our lives. Romans 15, 2. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. That's what you're here for. Everything we do, every word we speak is for the edification of others. And again, this is so important when it comes to our Christian freedom because when you're commanded to do something, that's really simple. If the Bible commands you to do it, it must be for the benefit of everyone. It can't be any less. No scriptural command could ever be less than that which is absolutely good. And no scriptural prohibition, right? If, if you were to blow past a prohibition and to disobey God, that is always bad, always harmful to others. Because those things are pretty easy. Yet in our freedom is where we find the difficulty. Will this be a benefit? How do I see the principles? How do I work this out with wisdom towards each one? And a lot of your life is lived right there. See, we like to just be told what to do, and then we use everything else for us. Now, obey the commands of Scripture. I'll, I'll do my best not to plow past the prohibitions, but the rest of life is mine. And Paul says, it's not. It's all Christ's, and everything you do is done as a benefit and blessing to others. Ephesians 4.29. I mean, consider how fine-tuned this is. Let no unwholesome word. No, not, not one. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. I mean, this is every day, all the time, in every interaction, everywhere you are. When you wake up in the morning, when you care for your kids, when you talk to your wife, when you respond to your boss, everywhere. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, building up according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace, it will be good to those who hear. That's how strong this command is. Every ounce of freedom. You can talk about anything. Any kind of, there's all kinds of great things you can talk about. 
But as you do so, it is to be a benefit. And it doesn't mean you just have to talk about Bible verses and theology. Right? You can talk about the joyful time you had out camping and the, the enjoyable sports event that you had. Those are all fair game. You're free to talk about those things, but only and always in an edifying manner, in a way that would be pleasing and glorifying to God, with ultimately God as the, as the end of those things. You delight in those things because you delight in him. Now, he goes on to say it another way, right? So number one, there was Christian freedom may only be exercised for that which is profitable and edifying. And then he just sums up this whole point. He sums up the whole Christian life in relationship to freedom in verse 24. If, if you, maybe you thought I was overstating this. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. You want a countercultural message? There it is. Let no one seek his own good, which as I've already said, is exactly opposite of what the world says. Let every one of you seek your own good is Satan's command. Let no one seek his own good is God's command. That's why we live. We are completely different. Every motive of our heart and direction of our life is opposite that of the world. Oh, we do the same things. We go to the same places generally. We go to places of work and we, we enjoy it, but it is all with an exactly opposite desire and direction. We are here to do the good of our neighbor. Who's your neighbor? Everybody else. Everyone. Believers and unbelievers, as we will see. Your life is lived not only in light of believers, that's first, benefiting and blessing the body of Christ, but also your life is lived in light of what unbelievers think. We're going to see that. It's powerful. Because like, oh, okay, church, no problem. I'll, I'll do what they think. I'm not pleasing any unbeliever. Well, in the right ways, you are called to, as we will see, in ways that will lift up Christ and will lead to their salvation or opportunity to come to exalt Christ themselves. Paul will say this at the end of this chapter. Look at verse 33 where he says, just as I also please all men, not just Christians, I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many so that they may be saved. Why do we do this? So that people will come to Christ. A strong, deep, vibrant church where we are giving towards one another and then giving out towards the world will be evangelistic. It must be. It can't be any less because our love pours out of us as we're living our entire lives for someone else, with the specific purpose of their knowing and loving Christ. Not just some temporal good. See, there's only one thing that's actually good, is that people would be conformed to the image of Christ. They have to come to know him. They have to come to look more like him. That's the one good thing in all the world. And that's why you do all that you do. Now, he's going to say it in verse 33, and we'll summarize that next week, but he already said it in 1 Corinthians 9, 19. He says, I'm free from all men but I have made myself a slave to all. Why? So that I might win more. You are here. That your life would be a testimony to the beauty and the greatness of Christ and the salvation he provides. And therefore, people would run to the Jesus that you love. Philippians 2, 4. So we're just doing what Jesus did. Philippians 2.4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, 
Imagine that, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the way that Christ gave his life. And that's what we are called to do. With all this freedom you have, all these minutes as Americans, because we have so much freedom. Like, oh, I got to work and I got to do all these things. What a privilege. In a lot of countries, man, you are just trying to scratch gravel to get things done and maybe feed your family and get enough, get enough time. If you, if you live in a really rich place, you might get enough time for a little vacation to take your family on. Most places in the world, what is a vacation? What is going to do something? You have to stay at it 24-7 as long as you, know, you sleep a little bit and you're just trying to live because we have so much freedom. It is all to be used for the glory of God. Every second. Every minute. That's how your freedom is to be used. Now, he's going to narrow it down. That's the general principle. But again, Paul is not just, he doesn't just launch into, now let's just all talk about freedom. He has a very specific purpose. Because let me remind you that when you exercise your freedom, it's for the benefit of others, it's for the good of others, because that's what Christ did. And now, oh, here's two areas within this whole discussion of idolatry in which you actually do have freedom. But what's the caution? Be careful how you exercise it. You are free. You've got two areas of freedom that he's going to give to them, but what's the caution? Be careful. Even in these areas, you may only exercise it for the purpose of being a blessing and benefit to others. So that's B on your outline. Christian freedom must be exercised, or excuse me, may be exercised in some cases of eating meat sacrificed to idols. I mean, this is mind-blowing. He's just told them, look, if you go to a temple sacrifice and you eat the meat there, you are communing with demons, Period. I mean, there's no way around it. And you, might, you may not go back to the Lord's Supper and say, oh, I'm going to commune with God too. You can't do both. You may not. But now he says, look, if you go to the meat market, that meat just 10 minutes ago was sacrificed, okay, half an hour, an hour ago, was sacrificed to that idol. Then the priest took it, he packaged it up, and he brought it down into the marketplace, and you wandered by and bought it. And then you went home and ate it. Guess what? You have absolute 100% freedom to do that. Now, that would not be intuitively obvious. wouldn't be spiritually obvious. In fact, you would probably think, look, if it was so tainted in that sacrifice, it maintains, it retains that tainted nature. Because, see, we're spiritualistic like that. And we, we tend to view things in that kind of mystical context. Was, look, it was tainted there, so something happened to it. And then it came back, and if you eat it, it's bad. Paul says, it's not. There's nothing wrong with that meat at all. Context is everything. Where the meat was sacrificed matters. You take the meat out of that situation, it's just meat. It was just meat there, that's true. But when you ate it there, you were actually then communing with demons because of the context, because of the sacrifice going on. If you eat it at your dinner table after it's been sacrificed, it's just meat. It's the same thing it was, but you're no longer in the context that would be tainting, so feel free. So Christian freedom may be exercised in some cases of eating meat, sacrificed idols. And again, I think he's, this is the first time he's introducing this freedom. Even in chapter 8, the issue was there. They were eating at the temple sacrifices. All along the way, he said, you may not do that. Now he says, look, there's two areas of freedom. And this is pretty important because it was kind of hard to get any meat in Corinth that wasn't sacrificed to idols. Probably more than two-thirds of the meat sold in the marketplace had been sacrificed to an idol. It would have been really hard if they had to limit themselves from this. Now, if they had to, they had to. That's how that works. But Paul says, you don't. Go to the meat market and eat. So number one, it is not idolatry. This is why they have freedom. 
So you take that bad freedom to go eat in the temple, and what did Paul say? That's idolatry. You are never free to be idolaters, ever. But because it isn't idolatry to take it from the marketplace to your house, therefore you have freedom. I haven't prohibited that. So it's not idolatry to eat meat sacrificed to idols if it is purchased at the meat market. So, he gets, so there's some principles that he draws. Again, once again, the overall principles here are pretty clear, but the way he gets there, are, it's not so clear. There's been a lot of discussion about how this works. So we'll try to, try to work our way through it. Okay, so because it's not idolatry to eat the meat purchased at the meat market, therefore Christian freedom allows for a clear conscience in eating meat purchased at the meat market. It is very likely that when you purchase the meat and take it home, a day, a day ago or you know, nine hours ago, it was sacrificed to Zeus. But the meat didn't change. And the context of your home is you love Jesus. And so you're eating the meat to the glory of God, and you have entire freedom to do so. Great, but he doesn't stop there. Fascinating. Because although Paul wants to be very clear that your conscience should be clear, that there isn't any reason why you as a Christian shouldn't do this, you still have to watch out for the dangers of idolatry. I want you to see this. This is really important. He says, however, meat should be purchased without questions for conscience sake. And you're like, what? Now, I thought it was fine for me to eat it. And if it's okay for me to eat it, then I could go ahead and ask questions. And if somebody said it was sacrificed to idols, what would it be? Who cares? So as now he's saying, look, you might not think this is quite right. So man, you know, in your conscience, you're like, oh man, if I eat meat sacrificed to idols, that won't be good. So I just won't ask. This is don't ask, don't tell, right? Ignorance is bliss. Now, some commentators take it that way. I just don't think you can, both from biblical principles, because Paul is so careful about your conscience. And if you even think that something might be wrong about that meat, and in the back of every Christian's mind would be, that's probably sacrifice to idols. You shouldn't do it. So the conscience he's talking about is consistent throughout this text, and it is not your conscience. It's not the Christian's conscience. It is the conscience of an unbeliever. Where do you see that? Keep following, following me down. So we'll jump ahead. So Paul ends up this exhortation by saying, in verse 29, or we'll read verse 28, but if anyone says to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. And oh, by the way, I added the oh, by the way. But in 29, I mean not your conscience, but the other man's. Paul is so clear throughout this text. You have no conscience, you should have no conscience problem at all. Right? If you do, don't eat the meat. But man, you can grab it and take it because there's no conscience issue for you. But if someone says it was sacrificed to idols, there's a conscience issue for them. You're in the marketplace, so now let's move back a step. You're in the marketplace, you're asking around. You're a good Jew, maybe, and you came to Christ, but you want to be kosher. You, you don't want to harm your conscience. Or you're like, I'm just going to find out. So you're asking, hey, was it sacrificed to idols? And, you know, marketplace, B guy goes, no, this is, this is good. You're like, you might take that. Or you go through 10 of them, and everyone says, meat sacrificed to idols. So you go to the third one, you go, that looks like good meat, I'll take that. Everyone around has just heard that vendor say, that meat is sacrificed to idols. And oh, they probably know by the way you dress, by who you are, that you are a Christian. And you're walking away, getting ready to nosh down your meat at home, and all everybody in the marketplace, did you see that Christian? That Christian who says they serve just one God, that says that you shouldn't honor any other gods, here he is grabbing this meat and eating it at home? And their conscience is harmed. Can you harm the conscience of unbelievers? This text says you can. Because conscience is not a Christian thing. It is a human thing. The conscience is the 
part of the inner man that regulates or that tells you whether you've done something according to your own judgment system, whether you've done something right or wrong. And that's happened for believers and for unbelievers. Now, the conscience of believers is properly strengthened through Scripture and through the Holy Spirit. But unbelievers have one, and guess what? They apply what they think you ought to be doing as a believer to you, and their conscience is harmed when you don't do that. See, unbelievers don't know you have freedom to eat the meat. Only believers know that. So you're eating this food, and they're like, well, maybe it's okay for for me to keep worshiping these idols. They don't seem to think it's a problem. Or maybe Christ is honored because here's this person, and they're, they're not honoring God. And a believer knows that you ought to be honoring God, and they, or an unbeliever knows you ought to be honoring God, and then they hear you have asked about the meat. You know that it was sacrificed to idols, and they know you know, and so their conscience is harmed. I think that's the most consistent way to view this, because that's certainly what's going on in the home of the unbeliever. But I think it's going on in the marketplace as well. And I think you will attest that at work and other places, unbelievers hold you to their, what they believe to be the Christian standard. They know what it ought to be. And you hate that. You're like, you're an unbeliever. Why do you care? Why are you holding me to the standard? Because it makes them feel good. And when you violate what they know ought to be a Christian standard, they mark it in their minds. And they don't know you have freedom. And you have to live according to their conscience. You're like, what? I refuse. Don't, because Scripture says you have to. You might harm their ability to come to Christ because of what you've done, and you must not. My whole life is going to be dictated by other people's consciences? Yep. On your end, you choose it, as we'll see. Others don't choose it in that sense. You choose to bring your liberty under their conscience. So purchase it without asking questions, but not your conscience. I think he would just say the same thing that he says at the end of this, when you're in the house of the unbeliever. Not not for your conscience that you would have to worry about asking, Because why? All food is a good gift from God and is clean in his sight. And that's his argument. For every believer, everything God created is good. There is no evil food. Jesus very clearly declared all foods clean, Matthew 7, 18. It's funny. We've forgotten this. Now we've got all these diets that we do, and if you eat food from Trader Joe's, you're holier than if you eat it from Walmart, and if it was, you know, not grass-fed, then there's something wrong with you. Because I don't want to step on too many toes, But these things start to rise to religious proportions. And you walk into another store and someone's there judging you. But guess who's really judging you? Unbelievers. I gotta be careful. I think you can still go to Trader Joe's or to Walmart and get your food. But nonetheless, we gotta be careful with this. This gets crazy. Jesus said all foods are clean. He said to them, Matthew 7, 18, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into a man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart? Duh. Right now, defile is not, you know, it might be bad for you. I'm not saying you should, you know, gorge on McDonald's nuggets. Probably not the best way to treat your physical body. It's got nothing to do with your spiritual body. Right? You can eat nuggets all day long and your spiritual health is not harmed at all. In fact, because you're so happy, it might be better. No. <laughs> it doesn't go into his heart, but it goes into his stomach. It's eliminated. It's eliminated. Verse 19, thus he declared all foods clean. And Paul quotes from Psalm 24. He doesn't quote Jesus, but the principle is Christ, because Christ also understood this from the Old Testament. Back in your text, he quotes the psalm that Ron already read this morning, Psalm 24, 1. Right? Verse 26, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. He created all that. That meat didn't change substance because it got sacrificed to a deity. It's still the Lord's meat. He still created it, 
And really, that psalm was used by the Jews as their psalm of offering thanks for the good things God had given, specifically their food. They would quote it at the dinner table. And if you go to a Jewish home, even today, they will quote this psalm at the dinner table. They are praising the Lord for the goodness of the food that he's given. And Paul says, yeah, that's your freedom. You can eat of all the things the Lord has given. You like seafood, eat it. I don't know why you would do that, but do it. Uh, you know, it all, any kind of food. Because the Lord created it. Don't, don't restrict yourselves in those ways. Unless an unbeliever might somehow think that you are dishonoring God or that they could go on dishonoring God because of the food that you eat. And that's going to be a pretty fluid situation. We don't have too many meat markets today, so you're going to have to work this out to figure out, would an unbeliever be stumbled, be harmed in their conscience if they see me drinking or eating a certain thing? I think you can make some applications in your head, but a lot of that's going to be specific to you and your situation the people you're with, the people who know the things you do and who you are. So he gives them this encouragement. You can eat it, but if somebody knows about it, some unbeliever knows about it, don't, for their conscience sake. All right, so the application. Uh, by the way, 1 Timothy 4.4, 4. everything God created is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. What a blessing, you guys. You have so much freedom, but just be careful that you wouldn't misuse your freedom. You wouldn't say, oh, I can't do that because the Bible says. No, the Bible does not say you can't eat that food, but your freedom might if it's going to harm someone else's conscience. So enjoy your Walmart, enjoy your Kroger, or enjoy your Trader Joe's. No food is tainted from where it came from. None. Now again, there might be some ways in which you wouldn't ask where it came from because an unbeliever right? might go, oh, that came from so-and-so where there was slavery involved. You might do that for their sake, but not yours. It does not matter where the food came from, from the standpoint of that that food would ever harm you spiritually. Again, you might make choices about what you buy and where you buy. That's up to you. But don't ever say that that's because you would be harmed spiritually if you ate it. You cannot, right? This, this passage is clear. Now, second place. So the first place, go to the meat market, get the meat, you can eat it, but don't ask any questions so unbelievers can't hear that you know that it was sacrificed to idols. Well, this then applies directly to a more intimate setting. So number two here, it's not idolatry to eat meat sacrificed to idols that is served in an unbeliever's home. Right? So by the way, see there was all food is a good gift from God and is clean in his sight. B was, however, meat should be purchased without asking questions for conscience sake. All right, now we're on to number two. So he says, back in our text, and if anyone says, excuse me, uh, verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, this is such a sweet thing because he's limiting their social interaction at the temples. You can't go there. All the economic connections you get, all the stuff you might do, nope, can't go. But you can go to the meat market and eat there and you can eat it at home by implication, you can invite other people to your house and eat the meat. And you can feel free to go over to unbelievers' houses, knowing that the, the vast majority of the meat they're going to eat is sacrificed to idols. They just sacrificed it. Remember, they get a third of it. They get to bring it back, and they're going to lay it out on the table, and you're going to get to eat it. But you can go. Because that in and of itself is not a place of demonic worship. Well, they don't know Jesus, and they're eating meat sacrificed to idols. It's their home. And you may go and freely partake. Notice what he says, though. It's so sweet. If you want. He's not commanding them to go because even we'd make this into a rule. 
well, if unbelievers ask you to go, that's going to be better for the gospel. So if you don't go, you don't love Jesus. He doesn't do that. For some, it would be very difficult for them to be in the home of an unbeliever. Their, their consciences would wrestle with that, perhaps. Not because of the meat, just because they're Jews coming out of Judaism and they're wrestling. We know this was a wrestle. It was such a wrestle that even Peter stopped eating with Gentiles when Judaizers came down from Jerusalem. He said, oh, okay, I won't eat with Gentiles anymore. It's a big deal. Paul says, look, you can eat. And you don't have to worry about the food at all because there's nothing wrong with it. It's not tainted by the fact that they just sacrificed it to an idol. It might seem logical to you that it's tainted, but it's not spiritual. It's not spiritual thinking. It's not tainted at all. In their home, you may eat it if you want to go. What freedom. Guys, what an amazing thing. Go, go to the home of an unbeliever. Of course, right? For some of us, like, we get that because we're not Jews coming out of a difficult culture. But for some, come out of some backgrounds, you're like, yeah, I'm not going to that house or I'm not going to do those things. That's, you know, Satan is worshipped there. Well, they don't know Jesus. And so in that sense, sure, their life is given. But that's not, a, in that sense, the kind, same kind of worship place as the temple sacrifice where they went for the specific purpose of doing that. So don't make an application that the Bible wouldn't make. So if you want to go, go. Love it. By the way, we just read the verse this morning, 1 Corinthians 5, 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with covetous or swindlers or idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Those people are a bunch of idolaters. I'm not going to go eat in their home. Well, who you, whose home are you going to eat in? We only eat in Christian homes. Well, again, if you want to go to an unbeliever's home, go and enjoy the fellowship there. And then he says, eat anything that is set before you that you may, even if you think it's been sacrificed to idols. It's fine. In fact, you know almost certainly that it has been. I think by implication, if this is a problem for you, don't go. He's already given you that. If, if you would be bothered by eating meat sacrificed to idols, don't go because it almost certainly was. So you've got to go, but if you want to go, go. Assuming that you can go and eat with a clear conscience. But again, he says the exact same thing that he said about the marketplace. Notice, it's the, it's the exact same statement. However, or do this without asking questions for conscience sake. But we know in this context, and I think again in the marketplace context, that's not your conscience. You have no trouble. Your conscience isn't bothered at all. Right? And if you were just sitting in your house and someone that sacrificed to idols, you'd be like, who cares? It's fine. Even in an unbeliever's house, if someone told you that, your conscience wouldn't be bothered at all. But what's the problem? theirs is going to be. Let's back in our text. This is fascinating. I mean, this is how sensitive the Apostle Paul is and how sensitive we are to be in our Christian freedom, even exercise, the way we exercise it towards unbelievers, as, as much as in the marketplace. And now, in sitting there with an individual unbeliever in his home, he says, don't ask any questions. Why? Well, then he goes on to for a hypothetical situation. If anyone in the house tells you that the meat has been sacrificed to idols, don't eat it. So you're sitting down, you're getting ready to, you know, oh man, so we've got some good, you know, good lamb or whatever you're eating, uh, and, and you're getting ready, you get the, the fork is to your mouth, and, and little Billy over here goes, oh, Daddy, did you tell him that was sacrificed to idols? Oops. All right, so you're like, um, can I have the bread? We have some salad? All right, because it says, if anyone in the house tells you that the meat has been sacrificed to idols, don't eat it. Why? For the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. And then immediately he explains, I mean, verse 29, not your conscience, 
your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another man's conscience? Look, I could eat it. It doesn't matter who says it. I'm fine. But the other man's conscience is going to be tainted if I eat it, regardless of who said it. Now, some think that Paul's talking about it can't only, because you can't harm unbelievers' consciences. That's in some people's minds. How could you do that? So there must be a believer with Paul, a weak believer who thinks that it's wrong to eat the meat. As long as it was hush-hush, it was fine. But once they raised that, then the, you know, the believer that's strong can't eat it because the weak believer's there. I mean, that's inventing a whole set of hypotheticals, which isn't here. In fact, even the word used helps us because everywhere else Paul uses the word idol meat, he uses a different word, a pejorative word. Essentially, look, there aren't any real idols. You're just eating meat that they think is sacrificed. Here, this is the word. It's the only, only place it's used in the New Testament. This is the word that Gentiles would have used about their sacrifices. So this is clearly, I think Paul is even indicating by the language, he's picking the language that a Gentile has said this. Look, that's meat sacrificed to our gods. That's the word they would use. It's not the word a Christian would use. So he's an unbeliever, and then he says, we just want you to know that that was sacrificed to idols. Then he says, immediately, you need to stop. Do not eat it for his conscience. Now, the question becomes, so because eating the meat might harm the conscience of the unbelievers in the house. Now, how would this be? First, why would an unbeliever do this? Now, the, the, the setting here is not negative. They've invited you to the house. It could be that they're setting you up. You're a believer. They invite you to the house. They're trying to figure out if you're a real believer. So you're about to eat, and they say, oh, Zeus just received the sacrifice for that. Did you know that? What are you going to do? Right? It could be that. All right? And then certainly you're not going to eat because they think you shouldn't be eating and they're trying to see if you'll actually go against what they think ought to be your conscience. Again, they don't know you have freedom. An unbeliever doesn't understand freedom in Christ. And you need to remember that. They don't know. They, they think that laws, commands, are like, you got to do that. Right? So that's one reason. Probably more commonly would be they're trying to do you a favor. They know you're a Christian. And they assume that you wouldn't want to eat meat if it was sacrificed to idols. So they're telling you. They're helping you out. Hey, that's sacrificed to idols. Sure you want to eat that? I don't want, almost like I don't want to harm you. You're in my home. I've invited you here. I am an unbeliever, so I can eat this, right? This is my God. But I'm not sure you ought to, so what are you going to do? The moment they do that, you say, I'm not going to eat. Because if I do, I'm going to harm their conscience in one of two ways. Either I, as a believer, someone who's supposed to be honoring Christ, they're going to think I've dishonored Christ. So Christ is going to be dishonored in their own mind, in their own conscience. This man dishonored Jesus. Or probably more likely, they're going to make a, he doesn't care. He doesn't care that I just sacrificed this or that this was sacrificed to idols. So maybe worshiping idols is okay. Maybe we can do both. Right? Just the exact thing that you're not allowed to do you're going to strengthen their conscience to do that. Because remember, an unbeliever's conscience is informed by the information they receive and the spiritual instructions they get from what they observe. So they're observing you. You're their Bible. And they don't know that you have the freedom. And so they might have their own hearts hardened towards giving up their gods because they think you're saying it's okay. This is a big deal. Don't act towards unbelievers in ways that would harden their hearts in the evil that they do. I mean, you can think of a lot of applications for that, I think. The things that you would say and not say, the things that you would do and not do, and an unbeliever looks at you do it and go, oh, that's cool. They think it's cool. So, so can I. Ooh, Paul says, gotta be so careful. You see, how both, how freeing this is. If they don't say anything, nosh it down. I mean, have more, have seconds. But if they say something, you don't do it because 
Not for you. You're fine. For them, nothing that they might see as idolatry and that they would be strengthened in idolatry. David Garland says this, it would compromise their confession of the one true God, that is for the believer, with a tactic recognition of the sanctity of pagan, pagan gods. That's how a pagan might view it. I understand this is fine. This is good. It might confirm rather than challenge the unbeliever's idolatrous convictions. It would not lead the unbeliever away from the worship of false gods. And it would disable the basic Christian censure of pagan gods as false gods that embody something demonic and might make when the Christian now later on says, hey, it's wrong to worship that God. You sat in my home and you ate food sacrificed to that God. Why are you telling me I shouldn't do that? I mean, it's pretty strong. He says, don't do that. They don't tell you? Fine. Because they don't know that you know. Right? Or they know you don't know. Put it that way. This gets a little complex in one sense, but in another it's pretty basic. But now, fascinatingly enough, because here's, what's happened, here's what happens in the church. You guys are going to take this and you're going to start judging other people's consciences based on yours. And you say, you should be restricting your freedom because my conscience says you should. Paul says, you can't do that. This is a personal issue before the Lord. Look what he says. It's fascinating. So greatly balanced. He says, look, it was fine for me. Why is my conscience or why is my freedom judged by another man's conscience? It isn't. So we don't walk into the church and go, well, my conscience says you shouldn't do that. So you have to stop. That's not your place. My conscience ought to tell me whether I should or shouldn't do that because that's an area of freedom. Now, if you walk in the church and I'm sinning, you should come up and say, that's sin. You can't do that. But if it's an area of conscience, an area of freedom, you may not come up and say, my conscience trumps yours. You better stop. It's exactly what Paul is saying. And people want to do this in the church all the time. Take their conscience and apply it to yours and say, the Bible says you got to be a slave to me. <laughs> no, no. The Bible says I have to be a slave to you. Right? It's just the other way around. He says, for if I partake with thankfulness, verse 30, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Unbelievers looking at Paul or other believers looking at Paul. Oh, you went to that home and you ate that food and you're in the marketplace and you ate that food. How can you do that? Paul says, I'm not, I'm not judged by you in that way. I choose on the basis of biblical principles and my own walk with God as to how I will bring my conscience underneath. You don't choose that for me when it comes to areas of freedom. Man, this is so beautifully balanced. So you're free to be a slave to others as you exercise your freedom and you're not trying to make other people be slave to you when they exercise their freedom. And the church would be a whole lot better off if we got this right. And the world would be a whole lot better off if our consciences were more sensitive to the things that might lead them astray that they would not be led into idolatry. So Christian freedom then is not governed by the consciences of others. That was point C. The conscience of others does not limit a Christian's freedom. And a Christian is free to thankfully eat of all food that God provides. Man, take it and eat with thanksgiving. And in that sense, you're not worried about someone else. Again, you're always thinking how do I live my life for them? But when it comes to sitting down and just eating food, you can rejoice and delight in what God has given. So the questions I have for you are this. Do you evaluate every word and action from the standpoint of how it will edify and do good to those around you, both believers and unbelievers? Is your whole life lived in sensitivity to what everyone else is thinking? Wow. That's what you are called to do. Secondly, do you rejoice in the freedom God has given you to enjoy his good world? Enjoy it. 
Enjoy the food you eat. Enjoy going to run a race or, or play sports or those things. Enjoy your freedom. But just don't let it turn into idolatry. Do you enjoy or do you have an oversensitive conscience that keeps you from enjoying good things that God has given? That's a travesty. It really is. Strengthen your conscience so that you can do the good things that the Lord would have because he's given you good things to enjoy. It says 1 Timothy 4, 4. Excuse me, 2 Timothy 4. It says you, God has given you all good things to enjoy. And then lastly, are you very careful never to condone the idolatry of the world through your actions or comments? Never to condone the idolatry of the world through your actions and comments. Because this is a well-lived Christian life, full of freedom, certainly obeying all the commands and prohibitions of Scripture, delightfully enjoying the freedom God has given, carefully working not to judge one another inappropriately, and yet always living our lives in light of how it will affect others. This is how your Savior lived, and this is how we want to live as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for our time together. Thank you for, for the beauty of your word. Or thank you for the, for the example you have given to us of one who laid down his own life, gave up his own preferences. Lord Jesus, thank you that you would not consider it equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but that, but that you would come and humble yourself even unto death for the benefit and blessing of us, even to your own destruction. Father, I pray that we would live in this world in ways that are sensitive as you were. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, amen.